Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Welcome to another episode of Upthinking Finance. Robert Francis Kennedy once said, there are people in every time in every land who want to stop history in its tracks. They fear the future, mistrust the present, and invoke the security of a comfortable past, which, in fact, never existed. I want to thank everybody for joining me on what I consider to be a bit of a milestone episode. It was just about one year ago today that I started this podcast and had my first interview And I have to say, it's been an awesome journey. I want to thank people who subscribe to the YouTube channel and listen on a regular basis through whatever outlet you have access to it. And I have to say, for me personally, it's just been great. I've met so many awesome people all over the world. And I hope that those of you who listen on a regular basis have kind of tuned into a bit of a theme that's evolved through all this. And that is literally every guest I've had on without exception is living their life. There's a passion to the work that they do and to the way they live. And it's been really inspiring, particularly the guests I've had in the economic sector. And I'll straight up, the reality of it is I've shared, I've been in this business for over 30 years now, and the stereotypes of greed and selfishness and arrogance, it's real. (laughs) It's actually pervasive, sadly to say. And yet the people from the financial sector that I've interviewed, I found it to be very inspiring to me that there's a kindness, there's a passion for the work, and I think a respect for what they do. It's been gratifying to see. And there's a bit of a nobility to it, I think is the word I put to it. People who are not just in this work for financial gain and meeting benchmarks and getting bonuses, but who really have a passion for what they do. I want to thank my wife, Darcy. She's been, uh, as always, the behind the scenes voice that made some excellent suggestions for topics and guests, and I'm grateful for her influence on this work. So in honor of the one-year anniversary, today's guest is going to be my first return guest, who is the first guest I ever had on the podcast, Alex Craner, who is the founder of Craner Analytics and the creator of iSystem Trend Following. We've developed a friendship over these last couple of years since we've been uh, acquainted, but in the last year and a half, he's been a co-collaborator with myself, my associate Amy Lenoble at Capital Investment Advisors to help develop a proprietary trend-following model, which incorporates the use of ETFs based on the algorithmic model he created at iSystem. Now, Alex has written a number of books. He's a former market analyst, futures trader, and hedge fund manager. We receive a daily report called the Trend Compass Report, which is where we get our daily updates. And In addition, the real gem in that is that he provides commentary that's both economic as well as geopolitical. In fact, he now has a periodic publication, I'd say he publishes every two to three times a week, that's available at alex.craner.substack.com, which is free for anybody who's interested in subscribing to receive these in your email. Alex is a father of two boys, and again, he's just been a great friend to me. So it's my pleasure to welcome back my first return guest, Alex Craner from the beautiful Principality of Monaco. Alex, welcome back to Upthinking Finance. Thank you, Emerson. Greetings to your viewers and listeners, and very good to be back with you. One year more experienced and wiser. Yeah, well, (laughs) I hope so. So first of all, thank you again for coming back and thank you for the friendship we've developed over really the last couple of years now. And so 
I thought it'd be interesting because people that I've shared your content with and that have investments in the trend model we've built over here with your help know you as kind of a financial expert for sure. But I also have really come to appreciate your geopolitical views. And so I thought it'd be a good idea to maybe spend some time on areas and aspects that, as we've talked about, don't get a lot of exposure here in the U.S., but I think are critical to kind of getting an idea of where things potentially are headed. And so I would like to ask you to elaborate, if you wouldn't mind, to start with on kind of this shift in economic alliances that's going on in the East, because to me, that's a big deal that really just doesn't get a lot of play here. Yeah, well, I think it's an excellent topic to discuss because we have now very important, very large scale developments happening in the East, namely on the Eurasian continent. There are several integration processes going on. One of them notably is the China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is the 21st century resurrection of their famous Silk Road from the ancient times. But basically, we're looking at massive infrastructure development projects, which will drive economic developments probably for the next few generations. The Eurasian landmass is extremely important globally because this is where the bulk of the global GDP is, the bulk of the global population is, and the bulk of the global energy reserves and resources. So in the past, we had this Pax Americana, which was kind of reincarnation of the British Empire which represented one type of governance over society and it tended to be good for a narrow elite in the West and for their, let's call it, vassals around the world. So you had large swathes of the earth which remained underdeveloped and poor, in spite of the fact that the industrial world was drawing a great deal of resources from there. So these are very, very wealthy nations and regions of the world, but they remained poor and underdeveloped because basically all you had there was extractive business models. So if they had oil, we extracted oil and we left next to nothing there. They had aluminum, iron, copper, cobalt, you name it. It was just extraction to the West, industrialized, and then sold them back cheap goods. What's going on now is a little bit different because this is China's initiative, but you have more than a hundred countries in the world that are now part of this integration process. And so the idea is to raise the standard of living and to raise the industrial economic development of the whole Eurasian landmass and to bring in Africa and to bring in parts of South America, you know, through maritime trade routes. And now the question for the United States is whether it wants to be integrated in this process as a participant or whether it wants to be the hegemon and then tell everybody how it's going to be and everybody how hegemon puts it, which has been the imperial model for the last few hundred years. First, the British created this model. And then when the British Empire kind of came apart, the vested interests behind the empire just kind of migrated west to the United States. They co-opted and infiltrated the American centers of power and then used the United States to be the global hegemon, to use American military power, American prosperity and wealth into building out the empire further, which is, again, it wasn't to the best benefit of the American people, much less to the benefit of the people around the world, but that's the order that we had. And I think that there is some awareness of this in the United States, and I do believe that Donald Trump's administration was aware of this, and I think that they were beginning to angle to 
just simply become part of this process of economic integration. But obviously, you know, this is politically not very popular with a part of the political spectrum in the United States, namely the neocons. And the neocons are basically the captains and general of the imperial class, which still, this is not obvious, but which are still ruled from out of London. London remains the headquarters, the ideological and philosophical headquarters of the whole operation. So the result is that we have a massive clash today. And this massive clash is, as George Soros put it last May during the World Economic Forum in Davos, he said, what we have here is the clash between two systems of governance. And that is exactly what it is. And I think that this Eastern multipolar process of economic integrations will prevail. And I think that when it does, it will be to the benefit of the United States as well, because the United States has a lot to offer. The United States is still the world's greatest economic power, not only because it has these massive banks and Goldman Sachs and Blackrocks of the world, but because the American small and medium-sized enterprise, the family-owned businesses, are still one of the world's most powerful engines of innovation, of job creation, of economic growth. And I think that once the burden of maintaining the empire is shed, this American enterprise will be able to breathe with full lungs again and then go back to prosperity, which the United States had before it became the empire. United States in history is, I think, the single greatest episode recorded of the growth of economic prosperity, which I think was from the beginning of the 19th century through about the middle of the 19th century. I think that the growth in prosperity and economic power that has been recorded in those 50 years, so that was before the Federal Reserve, before the Central Bank, before the fiat currency and so forth, was the single greatest episodes of economic growth recorded anywhere. And so that potential still exists in the United States. And when that potential becomes developed again, it will have this huge market to interact and trade with, which will be China, India, all of the Middle East, Russia, Belarus, and ultimately even the Europeans when they sober up from the insanity that they're in today. So... A couple thoughts. I guess the first one is one of the things I appreciate about you, because I'm the same way, is I ultimately am an optimist. I think, and this is maybe two parts to a question. One is, if this ultimately would be, and I believe you're right, a better position for the U.S., as you said, instead of, what's the resistance? I guess let's start with that. Why the resistance? Because what we see here is the constant Russia's the bad guys, China's the enemy. And so I think it would be hard for a lot of people to perceive there being any kind of economic benefit, really, or even maybe national security benefit to what you're laying out. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And I'll try to explain. I think that today the media narrative conflates the United States with the empire. Okay. And I'll try to like disentangle that because when they tell you US interest, what they mean is the interests of the international banking cartel and of the corporations that have grown around them. I mean, you don't have to look far to see that American interests in the sense of the American people have not been served very well since the 1960 or 1970. The prosperity of the American people has been on the decline. American infrastructure has been on the decline. America has lost 
a huge proportion of its industries. The United States used to be the world's greatest industrial power. Today, the United States barely makes anything anymore. It's all been shifted to countries where labor is cheap and environmental protection standards are low. And so the people who are in charge want to confuse this deliberately because they want the American people to back them, to support them, and they want to encourage this confrontational policy versus China versus Russia. But this doesn't serve the interests of the American people. Eventually, if the United States goes to war against China, the military-industrial complex, the banking cartel will benefit. The American people are going to pay the tab. They're going to pay the tab in blood and treasure. Whereas if the resources were allocated towards uh, repairing the infrastructure, rebuilding the industry, and then trading with these very large markets with money to spend. In the 1960s, 1970s, China was among the most poorest nations in the world. Today, they're very prosperous. They have money to spend. So is it better to go have a shooting war with them or is it better to trade with them? And another thing is strategically that the United States is not all that vulnerable to invasion. It doesn't need an $800 billion defense budget. And so the capital of the nation could be spent better, but their vested interests, they want you to think that, oh no, we're not spending enough on defense and China's going to come and kill us and the Russians going to come and kill us. We need to give more money to Lockheed Martin and Boeing and General Electric and so forth, who are all zombies, by the way, who wouldn't exist if it wasn't for these extremely, extremely lucrative government contracts. They're, they're uncompetitive, they're inefficient, these mastodonts that don't help American prosperity, that are no longer engines of innovation and development and economic growth. They're a drain, they're a leech on the society of the United States. So anyway, I believe that the day the, the United States stops feeding this imperial expansion, which doesn't help the ordinary people at all, is the day when a lot of resources, a great deal of resources, human resources and capital will be able to be reallocated to peaceful economic development and trade with other nations. It's almost like a contrast between United States, the empire versus United States, the republic. And United States, the republic, the way it was meant to be, that would be the model of governance that would be to the best benefit of most people. Whereas the imperial model of governance is using the people and the resources and the wealth and military power of a nation in order to concentrate all gains, all the benefits to a very, very narrow elite that's on the city of London, Wall Street axis. In Davos. <laughs> These are all their different agencies and think tanks and people who contrive the narrative, the direction, the smoke and mirrors, the whole dog and pony show to convince you that actually, you know, to basically just confuse people from the actual reality, which is not that complicated, in fact, to understand. But I think you can always start from George Soros's characterization of the big global conflict is between two models of governance. It really is that. One of them is the imperial model of governance. The other one is the multipolar integrations that will be much, much better for the ordinary people, ordinary entrepreneurs, small and medium-sized businesses, and so forth. All right. So one of the questions that comes up a fair amount of time when I'm talking to clients is everybody's kind of wondering where things are headed. And I think my kind of observation or belief is that, and we've talked a little bit about this before, is the current structure and the current financial system, there's got to be a transformation. 
And in my mind, that gets painful. You just don't shift from this $31, $32 trillion debt, money printing, fiat currency, all that to something that integrates more globally. And so you talk about China building an infrastructure, and I'll use them as an example. I was on a call with a commodity expert finance person with one of the firms I do business with. And her belief was, says, right now there's only one jet going from China to New York every day. And her belief is that the economy sign of strength will be when there's more travel. China starts expending their money kind of all over the globe. And you referred me to Russell Napier and his take is, no, China's building a consumption economy that's going to stay within its own borders. And so to me, that seems to make more sense. And I guess my question maybe in all this is that there's going to be some pain. Just no pain, no gain. I mean, I know that's, you said simple explanations. That's my simple financial analysis, right? And so I guess the question is, is in your mind, what does that kind of look like? I mean, I see in China, based on some of the things you just said, they've already been absorbing a huge amount of the resources across the globe. But I'd just be curious as you start the potential, for an example, of the dollar being removed as the world's reserve currency. Nobody talks about that. You do and a few others do, but nobody at any kind of mainstream level even goes there. And so I'd just be curious some of your thoughts as to what that transition looks like economically, if you can kind to take that and do something with it. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a difficult question because it's hard to predict things that haven't happened before because this transition in the United States has never happened before. But we had uh, similar shocks and transitions happen in other countries in the past. So we saw this when Soviet Union collapsed and went from the communist system to capitalist system, right? We had similar transitions in, let's say, in Germany, after World War One, after World War Two, we had a similar transition in Japan as well, first from the traditional Japan through major restoration to the more westernized Japan. And then again, World War Two happened, which was a disaster in Japan, and then transformation. And well, for sure, there's a rough patch to get through. And I think the United States has certain vulnerabilities that these other societies didn't have. And that is that over the past 50 to 100 years, the United States development was different in that like it was predicated on cheap energy. And then the car manufacturers, the tire manufacturers, they kind of favored this suburban sprawl because everybody had a car or two or three. And so it was okay to live one hour's drive from your place of work. And so if we lose the cheap energy, that's going to be difficult in the United States. But as a student of history, I noticed that people always figure it out. If people are left to their devices, if the government doesn't restrict the maneuvering space to say like, in Europe, they said just last month, European Parliament voted that after 2035, all sales of internal combustion engine cars are going to be banned, no more. So one important option is being removed. So I think that this is not the role of the government to decide what makes the best sense. I think that people should decide that bottom up. But if they do, you find that the economic recovery tends to be very quick. If you look at Russia, when Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, it's been only 30 years. And the 10 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union was one of the worst depressions on record. And then Vladimir Putin came into power in 2000. Well, in 1999 as prime minister, but he became president in 2000. So it's only been just over 22 years since Vladimir Putin has been in power. 
And Russia went from a completely broken rust bucket with the most corrupt government in the world to one of the global superpowers. And if you look at their statistics, the GDP, GDP per capita, all of these economic aggregates, their growth has actually outpaced China's. China's economic growth over the past 30, 40 years has been spectacular. Japan has had two economic miracles, one in the 1920s and 30s and one after the World War II in the 1950s. Same with Germany after World War II. You have these quote-unquote economic miracles, you know, like sudden growth of prosperity, sudden growth in employment. Resources go into repairing the infrastructure and production productive uses of capital, and then suddenly you have growth in employment, growth in prosperity, things happen and countries very rapidly come back to high standard of living and prosperity. Not all of them couldn't say the same about the Congo or Angola or places like that, which is not for deficiency of the people there, but of a system of governance that keeps them in such position. But for sovereign nation, for developed sovereign nation, I think we have great reason for optimism. And this will happen. It's just that this imperial cabal, their military misadventures everywhere around the world, the maintenance of hundreds of military bases everywhere and shoveling hundreds of billions of dollars into Ukraine and other places, this has to stop because this is really a massive drain of resources and a massive drain of wealth from the economy of the United States that could be allocated to productive uses to the best benefit of the American people. And so historical record gives us reason to be optimistic, but there will have to be a sobering up period. This whole notion that our interests are being threatened in China and in Ukraine, blah, blah, blah. You know, you always have to ask whose interests and you would have to ask your representatives to explain exactly how is it that your interests are in Ukraine or in South China Sea. And they aren't. They can't explain that. Those are the interests of HSBC and Goldman Sachs and BlackRock. They're not the interests of the American people. Thank you for sharing that. Because just the way you explained that, that our interests are being threatened, it just feels old and tired. <laughs> and one thing I've noticed, and maybe you mentioned in one of your blogs about your trip to Ireland, and maybe you could share that a little, because I think that speaks to the optimism for sure. One thing I've observed here in my little circle of influence, and I've shared this, I think, with a previous guest, Charles Smith, actually, Charles Hugh Smith over there in Hawaii, and is that there seems to be, I don't know, I guess a collective awareness. It varies from different people, but there is seems to be more and more I'm seeing with people an underlying sense that things don't align with what they feel. What people are seeing and are being told doesn't align with internally just a personal discernment, if you want to call it. It just, there's a disconnect. So I think, ironically, one of the positives that may have come out of COVID is it slowed people down. It slowed people down. I know it did for me. Now, all of a sudden, more and more people are paying attention. Again, as opposed to going along, like you mentioned before, I always thought The Walking Dead, that was a big show here. I used to be into it, but it was sort of apropos, just the masses just kind of going along 
aimlessly about. I was a part of that too. And so to me, that's part of the optimism. But anyway, I don't know. I was curious, would you mind sharing with that experience in Ireland? Because to me, that was a real kind of indicative of the hope. Yeah, this was just this last weekend. I just returned from Ireland on Monday. I was there over the weekend. And so this was just five individuals, five Irish people. One of them was a London banker and one of them was a manager of large construction projects around the world. And one of them is an IT executive. One of them is a media person. I guess maybe also the pandemic catalyzed a lot of soul searching and questioning of things. Well, they all kind of thought that their careers were increasingly meaningless and they understood that the quality of life, security and their resilience as individuals and as families really depended more on local initiatives, on cultivating and maintaining bonds with other people in their community and investing in local ventures and initiatives, agriculture, retail trade, not to depend anymore on these mastodontic distribution channels and large supermarkets that one day they just decide that you're going to have a toilet paper shortage or egg shortage or whatever. It's making the whole system too vulnerable. So they decided to create an event, organize a conference. None of them have ever organized any conferences before. So this was just like, they're all like, hey, let's do this. But it was beautiful to see the impact on the local community. Like 200 some people joined up and turned up. Well, I was invited as a speaker and they invited a number of other speakers like Richard Werner, which who in, in the end couldn't show up. Catherine Austin Fitt addressed us over Zoom. Ellen Brown. There were other people there locally who were for former bankers and who were developing local community banking initiatives and they are working on creating a network on of 10 public banks in Ireland that would then fund and support local entrepreneurship, kind of like on the German model. Maybe this needs a little bit of introduction, but basically Germany had this very highly decentralized banking model and some 70% of all German banks are local and community banks, which operate as a non-profit organizations. And they finance local, small and medium-sized entrepreneurships in their community. And this is not some kumbaya uh, people growing flowers in their backyards. This is real businesses. And it is this dynamic because these banks, it's not unheard of that they will sometimes give their local companies 100-year loans, extremely favorable loans, but the banker will practically develop a personal relationship with these entrepreneurs and the families that run these companies. And as a result, until very recently, maybe just a few years ago, has been the world's number one exporter with the largest number of the so-called industry champions. And just to explain these concepts for industry market leaders. And this is when the company is number one, number two, or number three in global market share in something, okay? These might be products that you don't even know that they exist, you've never heard of them, but it may be precision scales for laboratories, or it may be some kind of a thing that you maybe see if you go to a hotel. We're not talking about BMWs and Mercedeses. We're talking about people producing some kind of a something that they sell worldwide, and they're market leader in that among the top three most competitive producers of that. So Germany has the largest proportion of such companies in the whole world. And I think that they have something like, I forget now exactly, but the number of these companies in Germany was between around 1,200 or 1,500. I forget the exact number. By this measure, 
the second country that comes in as number two is the United States. And the United States has 300 companies like this that are global leaders in some markets. So there's some kind of a particular dynamic operating in Germany between small and medium-sized businesses and these small community non-profit banks that has proven to be extremely successful. And so this is what the people in Ireland are trying to develop for Ireland. Now, the problem is that this model clashes with this imperial model where you have five too-big-to-fail banks that hold everybody hostage. They cannot fail. If they fail, the government bails them out. To bail them out, they tax the population to the hilt. The problem with very large banks is that they finance very large companies. HSBC or uh, Goldman Sachs will not provide a $100,000 loan or a million-dollar loan to small mom-and-pop shop because that's a lot of work. I was just going to say they control the credit. Exactly. They will give $10 trillion loans to uh, General Electric and Lockheed Martin. And then when General Electric and Lockheed Martin go bankrupt, then they'll still get somehow the government to buy the bonds or ETFs of this company. Anyway, this bottom-up dynamic, which creates a lot of employment, efficiency, innovation, prosperity growth as exists or has existed for decades in Germany is something that I think that everybody should look into. And the Irish people are looking into it. And it's a much, much better model of governance than what we have with these mastodontic corporations and too big to fail banks that are still with us after they already were bailed out with massive, massive taxpayer funds after the 2008 financial crisis. And they're still in trouble. I mean, it's not like after that crisis, they went and continued operating efficiently. They're still going to have to be bailed out in some way. You bring up a really good point. My wife listens to kind of a caller commentator, but she's more than that. But it's that same theme that you just illuminated, which is the community. It starts at the community level. And again, that's the bottom up approach that you mentioned. And that's how the change happens. And, you know, I was thinking you talk about the banks, they control the credit and that's where all the ESG requirements come in. I mean, it's just a really bad cycle that's going to need to shift. I wanted to talk about shifting gears. Now I know why a lot of your interviews are an hour and a half or more, because there's so much to talk about that you have experience with about just kind of what's going on here in the U.S. economically. And I brought up in the intro about the trend model that we've collaborated on to try to bring that trend-following approach to U.S. investors. And right now, we're kind of in this trendless market, as we've discussed, which seems to be a lot of emphasis is being heaped upon the Fed. Will they pivot? Will they not? And I know you've written in the past that oh, I think the wording is the Fed's impotent. <laughs> if I'm quoting you properly, but I was just kind of curious if maybe we could kind of sort of round out the conversation of just monetary policy here in the U.S. That's obviously impacted globally as well, but just really how significant the Federal Reserve is at this point in time. I think that the Federal Reserve at the moment is pivotal because it's already the case that asset price appreciation is driven practically exclusively by monetary inflation, okay? So in general, we have empirical data going back pretty much a 100 years that shows conclusively that when the central bank expands the monetary mass, you have the growing credit impulse and the monetary mass increase grows, you see that you have bull markets in stocks. And then when they reverse or they slow down the growth of the monetary mass, you have bear markets. So Normally, if the Fed persists with quantitative tightening, we might have a bear market in stocks. If they pivot and 
revert to quantitative easing, we'll get bull market. And it doesn't matter whether the economy is good or bad. It's the money that's driving. Is the monetary inflation that practically directly translates into asset price inflation. And we've seen that. We had uh, similar cases in Venezuela in 2015-2016, where Venezuela's stock market went practically vertical, not because Venezuela was the most prosperous country in the world and because they had the best economy in the world, but because their central banks got into trouble and the only way they could find their way out of trouble is by printing more money. Same thing in Zimbabwe in 2009. Zimbabwe wasn't the world's leading economy, but still their stock markets went vertical. And we saw the same thing in Argentina in 2003, and we had the same thing in Israel 1986 and Germany 1922. So this is what's going to be driving the stock markets. Fed monetary policy. Now, interpreting the Fed monetary policy has become next to impossible because we're past the point where you had a stable geopolitical environment and then the Fed just needed to manage the American economy in sense of achieving economic growth, keeping inflation low and so forth. Now you have this rivalry apparently between the American banking cartel versus the European banking cartel. It seems that there's a civil war in there and that the American side is not going along with the Davos crowd. That's Tom Luongo's hypothesis, but the more I listened to him, the more I thought that he was on the right track because I think is the best hypothesis that I know of that credibly explains the events. So far, the events have redeemed him. And so I think that the United States Federal Reserve Bank still has some leeway to persist with quantitative tightening and to keep the dollar stable and to lower inflation. I think that European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan and the Bank of England are going to be having a much, much harder time of it. So I think that we might go into a period where you're going to have maybe not good time for stocks and bonds. Stocks and bonds are going to be a bit of correction. I hesitate to say bear market because maybe not, I don't know, but definitely not a bull market. At the same time, the dollar is going to strengthen further against uh, British, European, Japanese currencies. And the United States, I believe, will be able to hold out much, much longer than other G7 nations. Ultimately, however, I think that the Fed will have no choice but to go back to quantitative easing. And at that point, I think you're going to get higher rates of inflation and you're going to get a commodity price inflation as well, the commodity super cycle. So anyway, all these things are very, very difficult to predict. We can predict that there's going to be higher inflation at some point in the future. We also have the precedence of inflation in the 1940s and the inflation in the 1970s. We saw that in each case, inflation went in three large waves and spanned more than a decade. So we've already seen the first wave of inflation, but we haven't seen wave two and wave three. We had about two years of inflation, right? It started to accelerate from March 2021, and then it started easing couple of months ago, when was it? Last summer, right? 
So maybe now we have a period of disinflation, which who knows, but then it's going to go back to inflation. Anyway, the period we enjoyed until the beginning of 2021 was a relatively unique period in history in the sense that we had 40 years of declining interest rates. We had 40 years of monetary inflation that was boosting asset price prices with a few large corrections, the dot-com bubble and the 2008 financial crisis and the 1987 Black Monday. But generally, you know, the 50-year trend practically was a bull market. And I think that we've come to the end of this. And so I think that investors need to no longer think that it's just stocks and bonds for the long term. We don't know that. We've had asset prices reach 200-year highs in relative terms. It's not reasonable to expect that this just continues for decades on uninterrupted. So we might have uh, bumpy periods. I think it is appropriate for investors to diversify their risk, not just stocks and bonds, but to consider also commodities. And when it comes to real estate, I think most people have a huge chunk of their wealth already in real estate. So real estate is not particularly good asset in an inflationary environment, but farmland. And then again, going back to that idea of achieving resilience by forging and cultivating bonds with your local community and supporting the local initiatives, small and medium-sized businesses, and also working out ways to exchange goods and services locally if the U.S. dollar becomes scarce. I appreciate that comment, particularly because I think that's been the idea that the 40-year run, so to speak, I mean, it's shifting. And that's basically the philosophy that I've had when I'm explaining to clients changes in their allocations and why we're shifting things. I particularly have been avoiding taxable bonds as much as possible because to me, I see a lot of significant amount of downside risk in the intermediate to longer term future with the idea, again, that the inflation rate isn't going to be sub 2% to settle into more of a 4 to 6% range. And I'm just throwing out numbers that I read from things, but the idea that you can't just go 60-40 for the rest of your life and think you're going to be okay. So yeah, there's an element of change that I think people have to realize. And that's just a big dose for a lot of people. I mean, in my entirety in this industry, I've showed people a chart that just shows how rates have just continually dropped since basically the mid-80s up until, as you said, a couple of years ago. So I appreciate, Alex, it's always so great talking to you. I'd kind of like to end this anniversary episode on a rising note of hope. <laughs> <laughs> Any final thoughts you'd share with people listening? I mean, I know you're an optimist and I appreciate that. And you've shared some positives throughout our conversation. But any final thoughts I could ask you to share with the listeners? I always like to finish off on an optimistic note, which is not difficult for me because I genuinely feel optimistic about where we're going. But there's unfortunately going to have to be a rough patch between here and there. And we might have to sail through some rough seas. So I would just encourage people to have patience and perseverance. The thing that I always bang on about, I'm, I'm probably sounding like a broken record, but it's patience, discipline and perseverance. And the thing that we haven't seen in decades is a bear market in stocks. Okay. And the last time we saw a real bear market in the United States was 1930s after the stock market crash. And that wasn't like a 20 or 30% correction. And then let's all go long again. That was an 86% correction. And it took something like, I think, 26 years for stock market to recover. We cannot predict these things. Maybe it'll happen like that. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. Or maybe it'll be even worse. But to be resilient, you want to diversify. 
And then if you preserve your purchasing power of your savings, of your capital, which I think at this time should be the priority idea for investors, once the crisis unravels, there's going to be huge opportunities, investors, buyers market. For example, when the crisis in Germany 100 years ago unraveled in 1922, in December 1922, you could buy the Mercedes-Benz company for the equivalent price of 327 of their cars. Right. So for that much money, you could have the whole entire thing and you could buy a six bedroom villa in fashionable quarters on the outskirts of Berlin for one hundred dollars, literally. And so these are the things that that's just incredible to think. But purchasing power goes out the window. And if you manage to preserve it to its best extent, then on the other side of the crisis, there are really, really, really rich pickings. So I think that it would be important at this point for investors to think more strategically and more long term. I mean, not long term as in stocks for the long term. So let's just be long forever and not worry about what's coming. But long term in the sense that whatever crisis is ahead of us is going to unravel and it's going to hit the bottom. And then you want to put yourself in a good position to have options to keep your powder dry, basically. And for you as an individual and as a family, that will give you a lot of maybe good choices for the next stage of development. And as I said, nations do bounce back. And a nation like the United States, which still has at its root that healthy entrepreneurial spirit, United States is one of the world's great self-sufficient nations. I think there's going to be plenty of opportunities. We just have to weather the rough seas that are ahead of us. So I don't know if that sounded optimistic, (laughs) but to my mind, it is. It will just take a different kind of thinking than this long period of just like past Passively enjoying the asset price inflation and everybody growing wealthier each year than the previous one. Well, at least the top 1% anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah good, yeah. good point. Alex, I appreciate. No, you know what? Realism is probably better than blind optimism. So I appreciate the message. And so I've decided that the tradition is going to be as long as you're willing and able and available that every anniversary, you're going to be my return guest. So <laughs> I know we'll be talking in the near future, but let's just plan some time aside in March of next year. We'll do the second anniversary episode. I appreciate our friendship. I really appreciate your views on things. And it's just been a real pleasure to get to know you and share time and talk finances and everything else. So just I want to thank you again, Alex, for returning to Upthinking Finance. Thank you for the invitation, Emerson, and God willing, we'll do this year after year. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC, advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted, and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical 
and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.